0: Have you seen me, Dice Bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. This is part two. Of the Stormbringer episode, a supplement featuring all the bits that didn't quite fit in the first part. It's a kind of supplement that's uh, more accurately referred to as a companion. In this micro grog pod, although it isn't that small, we'll be heading to the Gamesmaster's Tower and looking at some of the supplements for Stormbringer RPG. And then I'll be going down to the shed to meet Eddie, who's been collecting Stormbringer stuff over the past couple of years. We've also done an extra bit, where we have a light-hearted look at some of the Moorcock stuff in our collection. Regular listeners will know that my gaming group, known as the Armchair Adventurers, have been playing together since about 1982, which, according to listener Andrew Jones, makes us Tier 2 grognards. We weren't around when the hobby first began, so we rode the second wave. We've rediscovered RPGs in the past few years, and this podcast is about revisiting the old games and published scenarios. Now then, with Stormbringer, other than the core rules, we didn't have any of the supplements back in the day. We used to write our own scenarios. We used to steal things from Moorcock's books. This podcast has been an opportunity to read some of that stuff that was produced for the game that we missed out on the first time. Getting getting reacquainted with the game has made us really enthusiastic to play these adventures. Oh, if only we could conquer time and space. We've had some more iTunes reviews. We've particularly encouraged to learn that we're inspiring people to start playing again. Here's Gavnard. What a fantastic find! Listening to the grognard files has given me the impetus to actually get out of the armchair, stop merely reading the rule books and actually start gaming again. And it's every bit as fun as my memory and the armchair adventurers suggest. He goes on to describe us as some sort of rhubarb crumble with custard. We've previously been described and compared to a jammy dodger. So it's good to know that, The podcast is exporting British comfort food around the world. I didn't realise that you could only see iTunes reviews from the UK and you need to change the country view to see the others. Um, We've been reviewed in Canada, Australia, Germany and this one has just been added by Hyperletic from The Golden State in the USA. I really love this podcast. Dirk and the gang focus on the same games from the 80s that I loved RuneQuest, Stormbringer, and Traveller, but from a British perspective versus my Californian one. It's a lot of nostalgic fun to hear their perspective on the games 30 years later, and particularly interesting to hear the areas where the experience differed between the two countries. Thanks for these reviews. If you're listening right now and you like what you're hearing, well then please, please do add some stars. And a review to iTunes. After all, Apple have nothing else to tax them other than creating complicated algorithms to help more listeners find us. I've had some listener contributions and uh, I'm going to put them in the postbag section at the end of this. Until then, I better head up those 888 steps to the summit of the Games Masters Tower. Go on, Ramblers. Let's get rambling. Games Master Screen. Welcome, Blithy. Hello, Dirk. Uh, Welcome to the inner octagon of the Games Master's Tower for this Stormbringer episode. Uh, I don't have a Stormbringer screen, Blithy. I'm sorry about that. Did they ever do one? I I think they made one for the Elric exclamation mark version. Oh, right, yeah. But I've not got it. No. So I've made my own with a ring binder with I've taken the pull-out reference sheets out of uh, the third edition, and I put them in plastic folders. Um, have you noticed they like flop over? Yes. And it'll annoy me that. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'll end up removing it and exposing myself. <laughs> Nothing worse than an exposed games master, No. So I'll put that to one side. You can do it without a screen. Yeah. I'll 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 use my arm to cover my secrets. I wouldn't so, read them anywhere. I'm a
1: mature player. I would never read a *Games Master Secrets*. It spoils it for everybody, doesn't it? It does,
0: yeah. Right, I've got a table, a very special table. It's a table of my own devising, and it contains all the published delights in the Stormbringer canon. It's even got the Citadel miniatures that they made back in '87. Oh yeah. Pantangian army. Yeah. Apparently, well, it wasn't an army. I think they
1: made about six. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> quite an army, is it? <laughs> <laughs> crack commandos, but not an army.
0: It's very, it's very hard to get hold of. Tangle bones apparently. is it? So, Yeah, very hard to get hold of. Why? Wow. The figure? Oh, the figure, uh, not the, yeah. no, not a no,
1: slippery, the cost- slippery customer. <laughs> the tangly bones isn't it?
0: Uh, it's got everything there. So it's got uh, the Rogue Mistress, which is a campaign that spans the planes of the multiverse. Um, and I think I, I think I keep calling it Eddie Elric. I think Eddie. Well, to He's like confused. <laughs> I think uh, Eddie wants to run that one, doesn't he, at some point? Um, So we've got that, the the Rogue Mistress. I've even put some uh, Elric exclamation mark ones in here as well. Oh, right. The Bronze Grimoire with uh, spells and ancient artefacts to spice up your campaign. There's too many to choose from, so we're going to call on the Lords of Chaos to Mm -hmm. help us. Okay. I've brought along my Cursed Dice Cup. The Cursed Dice Cup, yeah. OK, I've got two dice, and I'm using two eight-sided dice. Excellent. Better right. than D6s. Yeah. Well, you like the D66 so much that I've created. A D88. A, a D88, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> So it can determine the supplements. OK, that's okay. going to go. All right, are you ready to roll? I'm ready to go. I'll go for it. And it's 72. Moon, science and sorcery in Earth's far future. And, of course, this was part of uh, Eddie's Dragon Meat haul. I've taken it out of its plastic bag. Yes. Because last time it was a bit crinkly. I mean, we like a bit of crunch, but... There's no, a, there's not a that much. Uh, and this was the last box set that was produced by KCM, uh, but I don't have the box. Um, it was published in 1985 and written by Carrie Campbell Robinson, Robinson with Sandy Peterson. And it's notable for being one of the first RPGs that was written mm. by a woman. so Which is a bit alarming when you think it's like 10 years on. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, D&D came out in 75 and this was 85. Mm. So it, it's probably more accurately described as a supplement for Stormbringer as it uses the same core rules and the background characteristics have been adapted to suit the world. But it's a standalone game. You don't need Stormbringer to play it, and it's set in the world of Hartmoon. Now, I know I know that Hartmoon is your favourite character other than Elric. He is, yeah, yeah.
1: I enjoy the Hartmoon books. Um, yeah, they're, they're good books. They kind of hang together, I think, um, a little bit better than a lot of the other stuff. Um, the Elric stuff, the Elric books are better. Uh, the Elric stories are better, and Elric's a better character. But what I liked about the Hartmoon stuff is that. Um, it's a series of books, one after the other, so it's a kind of proper series. Whereas the Elric stuff is bits and pieces, isn't it? There's yeah. bits from magazines and the stories that are all sort of a bit
0: piecemeal. But yeah, I like a bit of I like a bit of Heart Moon. So the um, the Young Kingdoms are uh, set in the prehistory, aren't they? Our Earth's prehistory, um, prior to some devastating event um, that, that's going to uh, wipe out civilization as we know it. Heart Moon. Is almost the reverse of that, isn't it? Mm. It's uh, our world following a devastating event that's happened yeah. long ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're not.
1: We're not sure what it's. It's kind of. A, it's alluded to that it's some kind of terrible nuclear war, isn't it? You yeah. Know, but, but that's never entirely clear. I don't think.
0: Because the place that is uh, America now is inhabited by uh, mutants, isn't mm. it? And, yeah. Um, yeah. Religious fanatics. Yeah. Uh, it's set in the far future, and it's. A, it's a, a future where um, science exists, but it's viewed as a form of magic, mm. and the political system has been replaced by a feudal-type system, so it's known as the tragic millennium, and in the box set you get this great fold-out map, like the one you get with the...
1: Yeah, you get a map of Europe, a kind of post-apocalyptic Europe that uh, you've got, and uh, Grand Britain, which is Great Britain, uh, is a kind of... Unpleasant place, isn't it? Um, yeah. Kind of uh, full of sort of debauched, unpleasant, crazy kind of place, isn't it? Like an evil empire sort of Yeah.
0: Thing. Yeah. I, mean, I think where the, uh, where the supplement comes into its own is talking about Gran Bretta. Mm. I think it kind of uh, gives lots of good uh, background material baddies, because that's yeah. what they are, aren't they? they yeah, are yeah, The, They're the baddies. They okay, again, much like
1: the real Great Britain. Yeah. You know, <laughs> very, very accurate, isn't it?
0: <laughs> well, there's a, there's like these different orders, isn't there? So it's a you're born into a caste, mm. and depending on your cast, you wear this mask um, yeah. as like a filter. Yeah,
1: but it's a funny it's a funny game, I think, because the the game it's very good. Uh, And obviously, if you can play Stormbringer, you can play this because the rule system is essentially the same, isn't it? But it's a game that kind of reeks of potential, isn't it? Because it never really went anywhere, did it, the Hawkmoon game? Um, I I don't think there's many supplements for it or anything like that, is there? Uh,
0: There's uh, the Sheltered Isle, which is pitched as an Eternal Champion um, Mm. supplement, um, which means you can play it for Stormbringer and for Hawkmoon. And there is a sense of a lack of confidence in the moon um, game because it's encouraging you almost to play crossover games, isn't it? Yeah,
1: and, and when I had a look at it, it, it does. My, my initial thought is this would be great to take characters from the Young Kingdom. Yeah. So if you were doing a Stormringer game and you were doing it regularly as part of the campaign, it would be a really good idea to take those characters and have them kind of transported to... Uh, the world of Hart Moon, something that kind of did ha- happens in the books occasionally. People kind of cross over, um, and I think it'd be useful for that as a role playing game in its own right. As I say, I think it, it kind of was almost, almost cut off in its
0: prime a little bit. Yeah. I think it's a, a, it it certainly goes some way to uh, creating the evocative setting of uh, Hart Moon, but it's yeah, it, it's not quite successful. Yeah.
1: I think it's, well, yeah, it's not. And it, it kind of, it's, it's a little bit of a shame, really, because you can see how the Eternal Champion stuff had a, has a lot of potential. Um, and I'd say it's not really fulfilled in, in that game, That it could be a bit more of a thing than it than it was. It seemed to have died a death a little bit, yeah. not it, after Hortmear. And Stormring has kind of rumbled on in various different guises, like you say, there's the Elric game. Um But... It, Sometimes you think, well, Storming is a great game and, and Moon would be a great game as well. It's never quite captured perhaps enough people's imagination out there to make it a game, as big a game as perhaps we think it should be. Yeah, We're big fans of it, but and, and there's people out there who are big fans of it. But there's also people who've never heard of it. it it's an odd game, I think. It exists in a kind of... If you've, if you've heard of it and you like it, you really like it. Well, there's lots of people who haven't heard of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested if anybody else actually played uh, in the Hot Moon universe. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to hear yeah. from them. Um, I mean, they did go and they did produce a KCM, um license, the third party to produce uh, much later um, a quorum mm. supplement. Yeah. That's very difficult to get hold of. Yeah. I'd love yeah, yeah. to have a look at that. But
1: yeah, I think I've seen that on eBay. It's about £100 on eBay or yeah. something
0: silly like that, you know. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so that's uh, Hawk Moon. I think we uh, better move to the next one. If you pick up the Curse Cup, and let's see what the Lord of Chaos have for us next. 17. Ah, and this is a an interesting sideways move here. This is Imagine Adventure Games magazine mm. for, the, for the players of Dungeons & Dragons game. What's that? What's yeah. that? I've never heard of that. <laughs> That's a bit niche, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit. So, Imagine was a monthly magazine published by TSI UK between 1983 and 1985. And I'm gonna, I have got a grognard file uh, based on the magazine, it's mm. up on my shelf. I shall pull it down, in, in the future, one will look at it in more depth uh, at a later date. But what this one is this is the um, Moorcock Special. Mm. Uh, which featured an interview, an article about uh, the Eternal Champion, a story and a scenario for AD&D. Mm. Uh, and just having a look at it, I mean, it's a bit... Of a, I don't know it's got on the table, to be honest, because there's only one mention of Stormbringer.
1: But what I like, what I do like about the edition of Imagine is that, uh, you know, and you think that its it's competitor at the time was, was White Dwarf. Um, White Dwarf was a great magazine, but what I think they do really well in this issue is you, as, as a role player, you, you get a lot of information. You get an interview with Michael Moorcock. Yeah, yeah, you get a story yeah. and you get another an article about Moorcock's books and everything as well as the scenario. And I kind of like that, that it's something that, and I, I might be, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think White Dwarf really ever did. White Dwarf always had its particular areas, didn't it? You never devoted an issue to an author or anything like that. Yeah,
0: Um,
1: and I think that's kind of interesting. And I think what's also interesting about it is that it kind of takes role-playing games and then points people in the direction of uh, a particular writer, you know, and and talking to the writer. And I know um, White Dwarf did that with Critical Mass, which was their kind of book review section. But Imagine kind of pushes that a little bit further. It's kind of saying to role players, yeah, you play the games, but there are books out there and, and stuff out there that you can use and adapt. And there's a guy who wrote some of these books and this is what he thinks. And that's a, that's a kind of an interesting move, I think.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. It, the, there's an the interview's good because it, it is very hard um, to find references of Moorcock making references to games mm. and the... Games that had uh, been inspired by his work. But he was actively involved in this, this issue. Um, and uh, he, it, the, the only mention of Stormbringer is where he cheerfully uh, recounts a story where he'd, um, he'd allowed uh, TSR to use um, creatures mm. and gods from the young kingdoms in uh, deities and demigods and they had to remove it because um, he'd forgotten that he'd given KSM the license. So. Yes,
1: that's right. I, I used to have a copy of Data and Demigods with the Melody Bourne stuff in it. Really? very early edition, yeah, yeah. yeah, Paperback edition of it, yeah. which had those in. Like you say, I've got a later edition where they disappear for that reason, presumably. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time, but that, that would be the reason, won't it, the licensing stuff,
0: yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a really good uh, issue and uh, look forward to more Imagine in the future. Okay, let's uh, hit the dice cup again. Okay. 34. Okay. This is Demon Magic. It's the second Stormbringer companion. Ooh. Um Produced in 1985, which is a particularly fecund period for Stormbringer because it was, like, released uh, in the early 80s. It was 81, wasn't 81. it, I think? 81, yeah. And it was wasn't well, only till 85 um, when there was, like, a line of products to support it, so... Um, I think the first major release was the Stormbringer Companion so the first Companion um, which was done in 1983 with some extra rules and scenarios and it was actually, eventually that was bundled with the third edition so this uh, Companion, you've had a look through it it's got uh, rules for sanity some scenarios and some demon characteristics Mm. what do you think of it? Well,
1: I've got mixed feelings about it um the scenarios, uh, at first glance, seem, seem quite tough. Um, some of the statistics, you think, I, I, you're supposed to survive through this, I'm, I've no idea. But the scenarios are okay, they're fine. Um, the most interesting aspect of it is the sanity rules, I think. Um, on the one hand, I quite like them, because I think that the idea that sorcerers can lose sanity by summoning a god or a demon is quite a neat idea. And it's sort of in keeping with the books as well. Um, I know in the previous podcast we talked about one of the problems of Ringer is game balance in that sorcerers are very, very powerful and can become very powerful very quickly. So the idea that they can lose a bit of sanity um, whilst summoning these demons makes it a little bit more risky for them, I think is interesting. It's It's a good... It's a neat yeah. way of balancing the game. So I like, I like that aspect of it. Um, although, having said that, some of the, again, it does this thing that Stormbringer does, of some of the pluses uh, of sanity, the additions to sanity that it gives Melnibonians and Pantangians um, sort of suggest they're impervious to sanity loss, which is a bit of a weird concept because I think the idea that a powerful Melnibonian character or Pantangian can lose sanity, gives game balance. But I think Melnibonians get, I think it's power times five, isn't it? And Melnibonians get, end up with powers of 20 and 25 anyway, and then they get a plus 20% on sanity. You think, well, they're not going to lose any, is he? <laughs>
0: well,
1: that's a bit of an odd thing. But um, but, but then again, I think sanity might be capped at 90%, so there's always a, a chance. But I, but I quite like that side of it. What, I, what I'm not so keen on is the sanity losses for seeing monsters and, that kind of thing, a little bit like Cthulhu, because I think in a fantasy game, you, you don't want to be bogged down too much. It's, it, it seems okay to think if you summon Ariok, or are you have any pronunciation, I'm back into pronunciation. Yeah. Problems, you, you say know? Ariok,
0: I say Ariotch. Let's of all whole thing up. Um,
1: <laughs> if you summon him, you know, and he's, he's a god of chaos, the idea that you might lose some sanity is, is kind of a good, a legitimate concept, I think. Yeah. The idea that the bunch of adventurers when they meet a clacker or some kind of monster lose a D6 sanity I'm not so keen on because no. I think it strays then into Cthulhu territory where everyone you encounter some reasonable monster, you know, kind of moderate monster, and everyone's gibbering in a corner. Well it's a sword and sorcery game, I mean you want you want a kind of bit of fighting, don't you? A bit of action. Yeah. But I think the bit for sorcerers is, is quite good. You yep. could see or you could adapt it, because I think the saucer bit is quite a ni- neat idea, really.
0: Yeah, I think uh, mechanically it's a straight lift from Cthulhu, isn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it is uh, quite interesting to see the parallel development of Stormbringer and Cthulhu, because hmm. they're both licensed games that were released at the same time. Um, and maybe this was an attempt to reach out and connect Stormbringer with yeah. Cthulhu, yeah, possibly. Uh, yeah, players,
1: yeah. yeah. There's the bit at the back, isn't there? Where they, they give the demon statistics, so they kind of pin the demons down a little bit more in terms of what they can and can't do. Whereas again, in the original very, rules, that's not the case, is it?
0: Again, a very Cthulhu idea of kind of, yeah, yeah. You know, these unnameable horrors. We're gonna, you know, we we can't describe them or what they do. Mm. But here's a few pages on what they do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is a bit
1: like that, isn't it? It kind of seems a, a bit of a waste of time because it seems like a bit of a retrograde step, doesn't it? Because really what you want is that idea that it's open-ended. It's yeah. quite an exciting concept. you know. Yeah, It's almost like, I mean, I, I, I don't to say this now, but it, it, it's almost like Stormbringer in its original format. It's quite an interesting and quietly revolutionary game you we said this last time, yeah. it's kind of got things in it that are quite interesting and different. Um, and then it's almost like su- supplements that came after that try to kind of rein it in almost and yeah. make it more conventional. It's a bit like people have looked at it, and a lot of people go, what's this? Oh, God, this is a bit crazy. What do you mean? You're a Melnibonian sorcerer. I'm a one-armed beggar. You know, that, that's not going to work. And what about, that? you know, what do these demons do? What do they look like? Yeah. What, all those kind of issues that people might feel are out of the comfort zone. So supplements after that have tried to go, well, I don't worry about that. We, we've yeah. got sanity rules, which are raining that little those sorcerers a little bit and make them a little bit more balanced. And we've got descriptions of the demons. So don't you have to worry about negotiating. There's hard and fast rules of what they can do and what they can't do. And it just feel a bit yeah. like that. I mean, I'm not saying that was deliberate, but there's a definite sense of that, I think.
0: Yeah, I think I, I think it's this uh, companion he's trying to create a parity with uh, Call of Cthulhu, which mm. was yeah. popular at the time. Yeah, yeah. which was is probably, i
1: uh, probably. It is. Would have been. been. Is, would have been. <laughs> Will <laughs> always much, be. Well, always be. It's too much of it, isn't yeah. it? Um, <laughs> but it would have been a far, far more popular game. And yeah, that's sort of the thing, I think. They probably looking at Stormwing and think, well, if you make it a bit more like Cthulhu, that, yeah. that might make people kind of latch onto it a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Let's roll again. Okay.
0: 57. Okay. I'm glad 57 came up. White Wolf. Mm. This is Temples, Demons and Ships of War. Okay. This is a slim volume. Um, It was the last um, supplement that was produced for the second edition. 1987. Mm. Um, It includes plans and details for three temples... Uh, Escape from Yellow Hell, a scenario. A set of rules for ships and a set of stats for Elric by Sandy Peterson, no less. Mm. So you're making this one It's very slim. And again, it's part of that um, supplement that's trying to sort out some of the issues of the yeah. original rules.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the temples, the temples are actually very good. I quite like those. They're kind of interesting, aren't they? They're kind of quite colourful and, you know, there's like a fire there's a fire god under, under a volcano kind of one that's, you know, yeah. they are quite good. you a temple of law, a temple of chaos. And, yeah, I like those. I think they're, they're the best bit of it, really. Yeah. Um, the weaker bit, the ship thing, there's, there's some... I say there's rules for ship combat, but they're not rules for ship combat. They're just a bit peculiar. They're like rules that give... Ships like statistics, like the number of crew and the hull points and the maneuverability and all that kind of malarkey. But unless I'm you might correct me if I'm wrong, unless I'm missing something that doesn't really describe how you're
0: supposed to use these no. things, it doesn't, it, you know, it is an absence from the rules because the Young Kingdoms, um, you could argue that Melbourne is a fading empire, mm. is a, uh, it's a kind of satire, you could say, of Britain. Yeah. As a maritime, uh, yeah. yes, a maritime empire, empire that's in decline. Um, yes, yeah. in decline. Yeah. And you see that kind of motif repeated uh, throughout the uh, multiverse and Eternal Champion series. So it's a maritime world, mm-hmm. and most adventures, at some point, you'll be on a ship. Yes. Yeah? yeah. 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 So what you need is you do need some rules for dealing with those situations yes. on a ship. Yeah. But these aren't these don't satisfy No, no. That I really.
1: mean, they're useful in the sense that they give uh, an impression of how many crew. So you know, a Melnibone yeah. war galley and has two thousand slaves and a thousand troops, and that's kind of useful because it gives you a feel for what the kind of number of people that would be on these things. But in terms of anything else, it doesn't really give you all no. that much because I don't I don't quite know how the kind of whole. Points. I mean, mm-hmm. the idea that they would take some damage, but but again, doesn't really talk about what could damage them.
0: Well, you know, I won't. I I think if you look in the dictionary under half baked, there's a, little, <laughs> it's a picture of the ship well, rules. Yeah, it's got it's got Mary Berry and uh, <laughs> Paul Hollywood holding up holding one suddenness. of those. Yeah, the
1: soggy bottom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I th- I find I mean it's an interesting one, isn't it though, with with um, the ship rules because we hat. My heart sort of sank a little bit maybe excuse the fun <laughs> oh. um when I saw it because although they're not they're not ship combat rules I, I I'm always a bit uncomfortable with the the game within a game it's a little bit of a digression but you know the game within a game yeah. so the idea um, you know in traveler you get the ship combat starship combat rules where if the characters get into starship combat they player characters in a little tin box in space and it suddenly becomes a tabletop game, you know. I think D&D have done uh, I think a few games have done it, you know like battle rules so rules for battles. So if the players are in a battle yeah. there's suddenly another game almost on top of the role playing game um, and although these ship rules are not like that when I first looked at the, the supplement I thought oh here we go, it's another one of those things and I, I, I don't know, people probably will disagree but I, I take a bit of a dim view of it yeah. I'm not a big fan of it I just think if it's a role-playing game, let's stick to the characters. Oh, I mean, admittedly, in travel, it's a little bit different because starships, you're going to get starship combat. But if you are in a fantasy role-playing game and the character are in the midst of a battle, I'm fine with the games master determining the way that battle's going to go for the purposes of the story. And the players are just enacting their bit of the battle whilst it goes on around them. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the idea that, oh, right, everyone, it's a battle now, so we're going to do some tabletop gaming as well as role-playing. And I suppose it's like the ship rules. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm I'm speaking in the defence of these rules now, that the idea of ship combat rules in Stormbringer Um probably a bad idea. Maybe it's fine to say, you know, you're on a Melnibonian war galley and, and someone hits it and it starts to sink. It's fine. It's yeah. an adventure, isn't it? So yeah. we're not too worried about <laughs> why the ship's sinking. Something hits it and it sinks. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. I don't know. People probably disagree, but I, I just always find that. My heart always sinks a little bit when I see rules within rules, you know.
0: Yeah. Let's uh, have a final roll okay. of the dice. 83. This is The Black Sword, Pursuit of the White Wolf. Mm. Uh, it's another supplement from 1985. It's an adventure. And it's the second part, of, uh, second part to Stealer of Souls, uh, both of them written by Ken Ralston, who's actually one of the uh, design team on the new Rune Quest. Oh, right. Okay. And it takes place uh, during a story that appears in The Bane of the Black Sword, where Elric is recruited by a group of merchants to kill Nikon uh, by rival mer- merchants. Um, and Elric uh, intended to double-cross them, but he found out that Nikon was in cahoots with Thelab Kana, um, who's the, is his nemesis, is name yes, one Pantang- of them, yeah. Pantangian sorcerer. So he killed him. Uh, so, in, in Stealer of Sword, uh, still, I'm having a difficult that. Right? <laughs> Do you think Ariok has taken possession of my
1: teeth? I don't think, yeah, I think could be. got a tooth demon, have <laughs> become possessed by it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, Kill some souls later. Right. In in Stealer of Souls, the player characters are employed by Nikon's daughter to avenge her father's death by confronting the rival merchants. So that's out of the way before Mm. we start this. And this adventure sets the PCs in pursuit of Elric across land. Mm. So we never played this, but... Oh, I wish I could.
1: Yeah, I wish I could. I, I must admit, reading it, it's a fantastic scenario, isn't it? Um, for a number of reasons. I, I, the one thing I do I really like about it is the fact that it manages to, to pull off a real trick with, with role-playing games like Stormbringer that are based on, on books. It manages to kind of involve you in the stories, the books, Without actually involving you in the books, if that makes sense. So, yeah. so you're in the wake of Elric. You, you, it picks up something, it picks up an incident that's happened in the books that involves Elric, and you're involved in that. So the characters are from the books, um, and you're pursuing Elric and following him. So you follow him through bits of the Young Kingdoms, that, uh, and you're in the kind of wake of the stories. So he's been here, and this happened, and you then appear, and he's gone but you're the kind of consequences of what he's done and whatever are all there waiting for you. So you're involved in the books, but you're not involved in the books in that way that you feel you're stepping on uh, important tools, which no. is always the problem with role-playing games like this. You, know, you don't want to say, we're going to rewrite the books. You're not doing that. You're just in following his footsteps, uh, and you go to the same places, and you see the same things, and you see the kind of consequences of what he's done. And I think that's a really clever...
0: It, don't, it doesn't sound that clever, but actually it is very clever. very clever. It is very clever. And the way that it's done as well is uh, brilliantly evocative. Mm. It's probably um, because of the time it was done. Because you think um, this was people moving from um, doing dungeon crawls yes, yeah, to a more story-based mm. approach, more narrative-based yeah. approach. Because if you think, you know, even if you're, there's several um, city adventures in this, isn't there? Something yeah, there from are, city yeah, to yeah. city. I mean, even back in the day, back in the early days, um, it, cities would just be um, dungeons with the lids taken off. Yeah. That's not the case here, is it? No. This is, you go and it's got the details there for you to experience yeah. the city. Yeah. And kind of encounter people
1: and negotiate and talk to people. I mean, there is a bit, There is a lot of action in it. You know, it's kind of
0: action packed. There is fighting, coming yeah. yeah, but that—that's what's so good about it. Yeah. I think it blends. Yeah, it does the yeah. story. It—it yeah. mm-hmm. it, it don't, but it it not but its full of incident and action, yeah. and yeah, it never adorned the moment no. in it. That, I, and even at the end,
1: when you confront Elric, I um, it actually spoilers. This isn't yeah. it. You know, but who's, yeah. is anyone going to play it? I don't know. Um, even when you confront Elric at the end, it, it's not a straightforward fight. No. There's there's a kind of negotiation there, isn't there? You kind of meet Moonglum and, you know, yeah. his, his wife, Zara his, his his Yeah, you meet her. Uh, and there is like a negotiation there in, in how you exact revenge on the part of the Merchant's daughter, you know, and how you do it and what kind of negotiation you come up with. And that's kind of fascinating as well because, again, thinking back to that time in the mid-80s, you tended to get scenarios where you went after somebody, you were employed to take out revenge on someone, you went after them, they were an evil wizard or whatever, and you ended up killing them and that was the end of it. Whereas the confrontation with Elric, slightly different. It's a slightly more mature. I think it's more of a mature kind of approach to how this merchant yeah. daughter gets
0: her revenge, you know. And that's yeah. interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know... Um, I think it was uh, Albert Schweitzer who said that all he wanted, when he asked what do you want more than anything else, he said a vase full of time. A vase full I of thought time. you were going
1: to say a good Storm Ringer scenario then. <laughs> I didn't know he was a player.
0: <laughs> he said a vase full of time. And I'm sure that he wanted it to, uh, you know, the perfectibility of the human civilization. I just want a vase of time so I could play more role playing games.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah. That paints us in a bad light, doesn't it? Yeah. What would you do with a vase full I, of time? I, I, wish, I
0: wish I'd find this. I wish I'd find this. Yeah, I do. I do.
1: It's Yeah, it kind of passes by a little bit. But. Yeah.
0: but again, going back to what
1: I was saying earlier, I think that's the weird thing about Stormbringer. It, it was a great game, but some of the stuff, because it wasn't licensed over here or wasn't necessarily published over here or wasn't distributed well, I, for whatever reason, it was all a bit a bit, a bit like the Elric stories, oddly, ironically you know, the way that the Elric stories appeared in magazines and all yeah, over the yeah. place. Fragmented. Yeah, it was a bit fragmented. You, you found stuff and it, it didn't seem to get quite the publicity that it should have done and passed you by a little bit, you know, because yeah. we, we were, you know, we, we, I had Stormbringer, we would play Stormbringer, but some of this stuff passed us by a bit, yeah. which is odd because at the time we were heavily into role-playing games.
0: Yeah. But I don't know, it just did somehow. Um, I'm going to have a rummage in my bag. Whilst I'm having a rummage in my bag, mm-hmm. um, because it, what, one of the things that um, that you should look out for um, is a, a podcast called System Mastery. Have okay. you, have, have, you have, have, have you listened to it? No, I've no, not. Done, I will done, do now though. They've they've done a, a Stormbringer episode, and if you want an antidote to our gushing enthusiasm, right. Oh, right, they're not like it. They don't like it. All oh, right, they look at um, they look at the fourth edition rules. I will listen to it now. Well, yeah, well, you should listen to
1: it because. Um, are you suggesting that I should get a rounded opinion and uh, accept all different opinions? Yeah, other opinions. I'm not
0: going to do that. All I'm right. a rules lawyer. You know me better than that. <laughs> just a moment. <laughs> I'm just going to crinkle. So, if, if you're walking the dog, and you're wondering what that noise is in your ear, it's uh, me going in me my, uh, my bag. But yeah, I mean, to use an American expression, um, they tear it a new bottom. That's what they do. Do that? Yeah. They really, things a bit, a bit harsh. Some, well, well, what's the gripe? Well, one of the gripes, and this is what I want to come to because we've, we've got gone two to. supplements here
1: yeah. that provide
0: okay. the statistics to Elric. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 So in The White Wolf, um, Sandy Peterson has a goal, and you've got Ken Rolson. Mm. One of their gripes is that, you know, if you're a fan of the um, books, surely you want to play Elric. No. You know?
1: That's our first point of disagreement. No,
0: well, I, would you? Do you?
1: Well, this is. This I don't want to play HP Lovecraft in Casually. That's oh, not quite the same thing, is it? No, it's not not saying. No, true. You're, 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 <laughs> you're I don't want to. I don't want to play a puny bespectacled man. I'm already one of those. <laughs> the whole point of role playing is to not be a puny bespectacled man.
0: What, what uh, I think, uh, I think uh, Ken Santander said it'd be hubristic to play. Mm, yeah, oh, yeah. But what you can do, and I think what the beauty is, is if you are a fan of the books, this, this is not necessary, but you can encounter. Mm, yeah, Elric, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Black Sword does that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, and that's what's so wonderful about it. So these are the stats for uh, Sandy Peterson's uh, okay. Elric. And I've got uh, Ken. Okay. Ken's Elric. Oh, dear. That,
1: that's, I think this is a better one. Yeah. On. No, I think so. Storm Ring is better.
0: Well, there's only two, one way to resolve
1: this, 2d8 right. damage, plus 3d6, plus 1d6. Why not say 4d6? Anyway. Um, plus 1d100 power drain when it hits
0: you. Blimey. Right, well, this one... Uh, uh, so Stormbringer here, he does uh, 2d8 plus
1: 4d6. Yeah, the same, but not. does it not mention a power drain? Because that's the whole point, isn't it? No, there's no poetry. Well, it's, what, it's not Stormringham, is it? I think it's well, been sold. It's been sold for it It's This is Stormringham, El- Elric. Is it good? Yeah, right. I think,
0: <laughs> I think with this one, if you confront um, Elric in uh, Ken's version, Ken Rolfson's version, um, you're not allowed to use Stormringham anyway. It's part
1: of the negotiation. Yeah, he's, he's uh, given. He's already, agreed, hasn't he, to not use it? So no armor. His wife. His wife, His wife is Arizinia. Has forbidden him to use it. He's yeah. a fun prevention officer. <laughs> Elric's got a fun prevention officer. Can I use the can I use the, the life draining sword? No, he can't. Keep it in the cupboard. <laughs> I've told you once. So no demon armour,
0: no demon, armor, no demon <laughs> sword. No demon sword. So Is it two th- naked albinos wrestling with us? It's like it, so. women in love. <laughs> two El,
1: two naked Elric's wrestling. I don't know. Uh, well, I don't think. I don't know. To... How that's going to be. I, I don't think we're public. going to resolve that here. We? No, I'd rather not, to be honest. I think it's.
0: <laughs> I think it's time
1: to leave. But I think I, just as a final point, it's right. interesting that though, isn't it? How they don't like the fact that you can play. You, you can't. You don't play Elric, because I. I've looked at. I think it's. I think it's a Doctor Who role-playing game, isn't it? I'm a big Doctor Who fan, yeah. and I have looked at the Doctor Who role-playing game. One of the things I don't like about it is the fact that you, you play the Doctor yeah. and his assistant. You, and I find, you see, I'm the, the opposite view. I find that an uncomfortable concept. Yeah. You know, the idea of role-playing in the Doctor Who universe as a Time Lord would maybe be fine. But, and and I, may, I may be wrong here, but looking, flicking through the rules, I think I looked at it at Dragon Meat, actually. Um, I, I, there's the thing where you, you play the Doctor, and I thought, that's a bit odd.
0: Wasn't that, was that the thing with the Indiana Jones? Games?
1: Yeah, yeah, Indiana but... Jones is the same thing. I'm not sure if there's James Bond role playing game that does that as well. I, I might be wrong, but yeah, the Indiana Jones, that right. was it. And I, you see, I, I have the opposite view. I think that that is a bit bothersome and a bit of a problem. I like the idea that you adventure in that world. So Indiana Jones, you adventure in the world of Indiana Jones, but you're not playing Indiana Jones. Yeah. So it's like this: you you're adventuring in the world of Elric, but you're not Elric. It, for me, is is the way to go. It's just interesting that their view is, yeah, the opposite. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the the whole point is you play Elric and what you play Elric and Moonglum and Rakia the Red Archer.
0: I mean, I, obviously, I'm representing their argument. But what they're saying is mm. that all the way through the rule book and this isn't true of the early rule books. It's kind of saying, you know, you'll never be as good as Elric.
1: You know, yeah, kind yeah.
0: Of kicking it in your
1: face. So. Uh, well, yeah, that's, that's probably a fair, fair point, I suppose. If he's been held up as, you know, yeah, but I don't know. It's it's an odd one. It's one for further debate, I think, at some point. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know we, what people think about that. I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're definitely going to have to come back to this because the dice have not brought out any Elric exclamation mark supplements. No, uh, and some of the later stuff. So we're definitely going to have to come back. Mm. We always say that, don't we? We do. I've got a, an appointment down at the bottom of the garden to see Ed in his shed um, to okay. see how much it costs for you to uh, get these supplements. So till next time, see you then. Okay, goodbye. Ed's Bargain Shed. Okay, I'm just heading out of the towers through the rain sodden garden to the shed where Eddie lives. Now there's a tangled woman over there. I'll, I'll ignore that and knock on. Come in. Hello, Eddie. Hello, Dirk. Right. So this uh, time we're talking about Stormbringer, and I know that you've uh, collected a lot of Stormbringer haven't you, over the last couple of years.
2: Uh, well, not really. I only have a few things, but uh, it's all happened ad hoc. Just right. uh, I picked up the first uh, Stormbringer module, which was the third edition rules about a year, two years ago now, and I uh, got that purely out of the novelty and nostalgia reasons. It was something that I had back in the day that went over the wall, so I thought, I must get that again. Yeah. So I picked it up. And I can't comes... remember you were games master it, though, back in the day. Did I never think... did. I think uh, Blythe did most of the yeah, games did, mastering yeah. for that. I think Having to think about it, Stormringer was the only game that I never actually played before I met you and uh, Blythe.
1: Really?
2: Me and Herbert, we did the usual Tunnels and Trolls, Dungeons and Dragons, RuneQuest, Call of Cthulhu, uh, in that order. And then we bumped into U2, and then uh, we kind of never, never played Stormbring in that time. I don't know why, it was out. It was out a few years before then, but uh, yeah. it must have passed us by.
0: So if I wanted to get hold of the first or second edition rules, how much
2: would they cost? Well, the first and second are almost identical, apart from the rule book. In The first edition they're in three, three or four little booklets. Uh, the second edition's all joined together in one booklet, uh, and it, it doesn't come up that often, actually. But you can expect to pay the box set. I'd say anything from twenty to thirty pounds, maybe more, uh, if you were, you know, if you're real after and it was in mint condition. I picked up the first edition. And I paid £30 for it, but uh, which seemed a lot. When I looked at it, it was a buy-it now with delivery that were free, and it seemed a lot. And it was only by a chance that I clicked on it, and it's and it had uh, three other modules thrown in. It had the, this, the Companion, it had the, uh, the Black Sword, it had the Stealer of Souls mm. campaign yeah. in the box set, all for £30. So when I worked it out, that's like four items all for £30. Mm. So each one of them uh, come to about seven pound fifty each. Yeah. So cool. I thought that was a bargain. So what's well, not up. It,
0: when I a casual browsing myself, it seems that like the third edition is the one that you can get hold of
2: quite easily. It, it is. That's what I picked up a few years ago as well. It, it was dirt cheap on Amazon. You could get it below ten pounds. I think mm. I paid about seven or eight pounds mm. at the time. Uh, but it, lately, it's gone. Must have. People must have picked them up and the, the transfer of these books have slowed down a bit because they've risen. I think you're going to expect to pay about over 10 10 to £20, pounds, I think, for that book now.
0: But the um, fourth edition seems the one that's most prevalent, the one that's most available. You can, so that's yeah, a 90s one, isn't it? Yeah. That's right,
2: 1991, I think, that came yeah. out. Uh, and it's probably the best one to get, if you ask me which one to get. It just seems the same as... All the early editions, I think it's been tidied up, but the layout's got that Chaosium look. It looks, in my eyes, good. Yeah. The artwork on the front's great. So it's got everything that all the early editions had and I think, without going into details about the rules changes, I think it's been tidied up a little bit. Yeah, it still keeps that kind of chaotic character generation bit at the beginning, yeah. which I think's very important for Stormbringer. And how much is, is that one? The fourth one I think I got mine from I think that was Amazon. Yeah, again, anything from ten to twenty pounds, but I think you might pay a little bit more than that now. Right. Uh I think as a rule of thumb, if you if you I have an Ed's bargainometer. Right. <laughs> so anything below ten pounds, whatever it is, for these old modules, anything below a tenner, you're gonna get a bargain. So that's a bargain, yeah. no matter what it is. Then the next step up is from 10 to 20 pounds. Now, that's a reasonable price to pay for whatever book you're going to get. Yeah. Uh, and then above that, 20 to 30, you're in the realms of do I really want it, do I really need it, am I collecting it? Anything above 30 pounds is in the collecting zone. And If you really yeah. want it, you pay it. It doesn't matter. If you want it, get it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, but it's them three bands up to 30 pounds. I think you could get more modules for, some always go for more, some go for less.
0: It's a strange thing that the 5th edition seems to be the one that gets it
2: does. the highest that's, price. It that's, uh, always seems to be about £50, £60 pounds yeah. for some oh. reason. That's off the scale on the bargain. It is. I don't it? know why. I've seen it, and I know I could get a older one now. I'll not mention it on Earth uh, for £37.99, free right. delivery. That's not <laughs> what I would pay, right. but I know if you're interested, I know you're you like your Stormbringer stuff. But if you really wanted it, I'll let you know. Thanks,
0: Peter. <laughs> okay, let's have a look at some of these uh, supplements then. So mm-hmm. we know that Hawkmoon was part of the um, Dragon Meat haul. But if you weren't uh, lucky or such
2: a bargaining uh, master like yourself, <laughs> how much would you expect to pay? I think I think for box sets, like any of the chaos and box sets, you take your Ed's Bargainometer and you add £10 to it. Right. So anything that's, if you're getting it under £20 for a box set is a bargain. Now I have seen, someone's picked one up quite recently, a box set looked in good nick for for under £20, just under £20. Now that was a bargain. We paid £10 without the box and I thought that was that was great. Yeah, very good. So uh, everything kind of, the old box sets, I'd say you're going to pay £20 plus plus, okay. and I know
0: you don't collect uh, magazines very much but what about Imagine Magazine the MoCop special
2: yeah he uh, showed me that earlier didn't you yeah. uh, it's got a fantastic cover on it there. now I've never bought uh, an Imagine Magazine I remember them being on uh, the shelves of W.H. Smiths and I flicked through them but because they were almost mostly D&D yeah. and we never played that, at that in the mid 80s 85, 86 yeah, I mean, yeah, if you look at, I think, a fiver for a magazine, if you're going to pay under £5, it's a bargain. Yeah. If you really want it, I mean, I know your big old Michael Moorcock. it's a fantastic, it's a good nick, that one. So, how much did you pay for it? I think I paid 3 uh, three ninety nine. Yeah, that's a bargain.
0: And I know that in uh, some of the shops it's a lot more than that, asking like 15 20 quid Yeah, see, so that's too much.
2: I think on eBay you could pay for magazines... Under a fiver, you got a bargain. A fiver to ten pounds is if you want it, and it's the one missing of your collection. Anything over ten pounds, you're paying through the nose. Mm. It's like that one missing, uh, missing uh, magazine that you need for your collection. That I would pay over a tenner. Yeah, I know. I know you were pleased to find uh, Demon Magic when you got it at Dragon Meat. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I paid ten pounds for that, so I was really chuffed because that goes for silly prices. I've seen for £30, people have bought that and bidded for it. So that's a little bit much, I think. But £10 to £20, I would have have paid for that. It's got a load of uh, scenarios in. It's got some rules change as well, but it's also got the the Velvet Circle, which is supposed to be a really, really good campaign. I've never read that, but it's written by uh, the Masks of Knife author, Larry de so, I've not read it because I'm hoping someone had run it for us. So. <laughs> they might get a chance. I was hoping. So I think, I think that's a bargain. But I'd expect normally to pay twenty pounds for something like that. And what about this one, White Wolf? I ah, know that. I put you in touch with. That. I'd never seen that until I stumbled across it on uh, on eBay, uh, and I think was it was only ten pounds. Yeah, it was only ten Which, that one. I thought
0: a yeah, bargain on the bargain on it. That's right.
2: It just tipped in at the bargain <laughs> side. So now, because I hadn't seen it, I, I were not sure whether it was any good. Although looking at it now, it's got some fantastic diagrams. Typical chaosium, is it? Yeah, brilliant stuff. But it's yeah. got what would put me off is these ship rules. Why do they have ship rules in them? I mean, yeah, I what's know. the big <laughs> big hard about ships? Have you ever wanted yeah. to play a ship? <laughs> But <laughs> well, okay. it just so happens that uh, my next uh, campaign you'll be playing a, a ship, yeah, a frigate. <laughs> yeah. It's not; it doesn't exactly float me boats. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, and finally, the black uh, sword pursuit of the white wolf. That you got bundled, didn't you, with your old book? That's right. I mean,
2: that's the main reason why I bought the box set, which yeah. cost me thirty pounds for all uh, four parts of it. It's uh, fantastic adventure, that one. Is it? I've not looked at it in any depth. I've flicked through it. Uh, and I'm a sucker for campaigns. So if somebody there's a campaigner, I tend to want it. Especially when it's done by Chaosium, because I love the maps. The covers are great. I just like the format. Dead easy to read. I think, as well, it, yeah, falls, it
0: kind of falls into you, a thing that you always say that the uh, really good supplements are the ones that have good scenarios in because there's too many of them that kind of bung more rules in and more yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But the, the good stuff is the uh, scenarios, and that's the thing with the all
2: the Stormbringer companions and things, they give you extra adventures to they play. Do, yeah. They do, yeah. Virtually every rule book, well I'm not sure about the 5th edition, but I'm sure it does have, but every one has 4 or 5 scenarios in yeah. to get you going. Some of you even have solo scenarios, so yeah, uh, you get a lot of Bang for your book, really, with the chaos and stuff, I think so. Anyway, yeah, so how much for the black sword? It came as part of my box set deal, so I paid £7.50. Right. I mean, one of the things that um, I point out with people to people is that they often get um, wrongly categorized, don't they? They the do, yeah. Stuff. You've got to be very, very clever with your searches. Uh, you can, if you put in just looking like the war game section of eBay. You type it in and you see the same old stuff that are there, or buy it now that have been there for years. Uh, but you sometimes got to be a bit clever with your searches, haven't you? Yeah. You got to kind of look under a different category, look under general category, look under books, and sometimes you find them. That goes for a lot of things that you're searching for on eBay, just uh, or anywhere, not just on the net. Don't just go straight onto eBay and buy it. Try Amazon. Search under different categories under Amazon. Go, just do a Google search for the books. Sometimes you find it. books. I've used them a lot. Yeah, got some, some things off them that are dirt cheap. Before I leave the shed, I going to ask you one last question. When are you going to run uh, Rogue Mistress for us? Well, I did say I would, I think, when we had a drink about a, a year ago. I was kind of <laughs> <laughs> extolling the, kind of the, this brilliant campaign that I'd just read called Rogue Mistress. Now, this is uh, it's dirt cheap, really. It's only about £10, yeah. £12 pound on eBay. It's got a fantastic... Uh, Campaigning, going to different dimensions, you know, it's like an alien spaceship, which is this head or this these so island. Don't, don't realms. Spoil it, island it. realms that are held by chains and being pulled towards chaos, or or yeah. this the future Earth that like you just—it's a fantastic uh, campaign, I Which could, with a clever GM, convert it to another system, to like Cthulhu or any other system. It's brilliant. And you've just been showing me uh, Magic World uh, earlier, so yeah, yeah, Magic World is the kind of ringer rules with the Young kin- Kingdoms taken off right. so it's all the Elric connections and all the the Young Kingdoms parts just taken off and just with the boiled down rules so if anybody's looking to get all of just the rules have a look at Magic World get all of that and that's uh, available on KCM website isn't it? I think it is yeah you can get the PDF of that now still uh, yeah. and and I think I got it from Amazon, again, £15 or something like that. Mm. If you're struggling for the rules, and you can easily run Magic World and just get yourself a Stormbringer supplement and run it with that. Right. You don't really need all the background that comes with mm. uh, the Stormbringer rule sets. I don't think so, anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, but I look
2: forward to uh, The Rogue Mistress. In about five yeah. years' time. Yeah. <laughs> Until next time. See you okay. later. See you later.
0: John, and tell. Welcome back, Blithy. Hello Dirk. So this is a new section, it's so new that I've come up with a rubbish working title that seems to have stuck, and it's called Show and Tell. And uh, we've come to the very summit of dirt Towers, into the attic, where we retreat to find remnants of our past and possible futures. Okay, it, the, the only thing that lives here are pigeons and spiders. And there's piles and piles of boxes filled with stuff that doesn't fit under the stairs. Did you have any trouble coming through the hatch? A, a little bit, but I'm in now. You managed to squeeze yeah. through. Yeah, we need a bigger hatch. Okay, how will this work? Well, we're going to take turns in sharing something significant and interesting from our collections. Okay, we have a lot of stuff um, relating to Morcock. I mean, m- myself, when I uh, left for college um, back in. Eighty-eight, I became an obsessive collector of uh, morcot material. Everywhere I went, I would every charity shop, every second-hand shop, I would go on the hunt for something. Uh, and I remember the day I found the uh, film tying novelisation of the Great Rock and Roll Swindle. It was a momentous day. <laughs> <laughs> found it in York, I think it was. Mm. A dog-eared copy, full of mildew, but I still had it. It was still mine, so uh, that was great. So. He's a very accessible author in terms of uh, meeting people. He spends divides his time between Austin, Texas and uh, Paris. He comes visiting. But he's a very accessible author. And when he has a new book, he, he often tours with it. But we've only ever met him once. We have, yeah. Oh, um, well, we say
1: met. Watched him from a distance. Watched him from a distance? Yeah, really him. And I
0: I've got a book signed by him at that time. Yeah, yeah, true. That counts as yeah. encountering someone, yeah. doesn't it? I
1: think it's on the encounter table, the celebrity and table, I think it does, yes.
0: Yeah. And we went uh, to see him at Odyssey 7, so Odyssey 7 was in Manchester. Manchester is the nearest metropolis to us, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. The world's first industrial city mm. and the site of Odyssey 7. Odyssey 7, which
1: was a science fiction bookshop. It sold a little bit of role-playing stuff, didn't it? And it actually sold some rather unusual role-playing things that weren't available. I I think we saw the uh, KSC
0: Ringworld role-playing game. We did, yeah. 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 And Um, it it had a lot of uh, fantasy games, unlimited stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it was
1: predominantly a bookshop. Yeah.
0: Science fiction, and fantasy bookshop. And it uh, also had an amazing collection of imported material. Mm. So, uh, stuff from America with uh, yellow edges to the spine. Yes. Yellow edges to the the books. Yeah. So we've got they used to have posters as well and it used to be advertised in the back of um starburst yeah magazine so we made the trek over there create to walk over there mm. and it's in the university park and it's part of a shopping mall yeah. that i never had anybody in it
1: no yeah. it wasn't it was a desolate shopping mall which was like it's a shopping mall it wasn't we didn't call it a shopping mall then did we <laughs> no it's, it's a shopping, shopping centre, centre. <laughs> it's an arndale centre it was a <laughs> shopping mall it Sorry. is now a shopping mall because we've all watched, you know, Dawn of the Dead, but uh, it actually felt like something from Dawn of the Dead, didn't it, it? did, it yeah. It was like desolate. and I It had say. music playing really, loudly. <laughs> yes. did it? did, yeah. yeah.
0: And the escalators would just like send yeah. you up there into this ghostly mm. place. <laughs> and uh, Odyssey 7 was a, a corridor-like uh, shop mm. with uh, books stacked on either side and posters and things like that. And Michael Moorcott was going to be there, so we made it be like because In our heads, Michael Moorcock was some kind of foppish guy with a a snap-brim
1: fedora. Yeah, we expected him to look like a wizard. Yeah. I think we expected him to turn up wearing a pointy hat and a caftan or some other such strange kind of clothing and be a complete eccentric. And he turned up. And I think you're... Um, What what did you whisper to me? Your observation? He looks like a
0: greengrocer. He looked like a greengrocer. He did look like a greengrocer. He had, like, uh, patches on his... Uh, <laughs> he was very ordinary-looking, ordinary, wasn't he? Ordinary <laughs>
1: looking He was very ordinary, and it, it was... I'm going to say disappointing, but it was slightly surprising, wasn't it? Yeah. And he it did looked, look like a greengrocer.
0: He looked like somebody who'd be uh, weighing out bananas mm. rather than uh, conjuring up yeah. fantasy worlds. Yeah, yeah.
1: Not, not that, to be fair, not that the two things are mutually exclusive. I think you can be a greengrocer and a fantasy writer.
0: Yeah. I don't know uh, if there are any out there,
1: but you know, yeah. can
0: be. He clearly is. Hopefully. I think I like to think he is. So, what have you got? First of all, in your sack of surprises. Well,
1: my first thing is the Michael Moorcock guide to green grocery. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's not. It's um, it's Michael Moorcock's study of epic fantasy, wizardry, and wild romance. Ah,
0: yes. Um,
1: which was a book that we encountered sort of. Later on in the 80s, um, and it's a, as, as the title suggests, it's his study of uh, fantasy writing, and it's a series of essays, really, isn't it? Um, but there's one essay in particular that really struck a chord with me, and I know it did with you, and, and as with quite a few people that we've spoken to over the years, which was the essay entitled Epic Pooh. Um, Pooh, as in Pooh Bear, um, B-O-O-H. And essentially... It's a critique of kind of Tolkien-esque fantasy and Tolkien, isn't it? Yeah. Um, And it has a bit of a, well, say a bit of a go, quite a lot of a go at Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Uh, And it gives it a kind of Marxist analysis. That might be a little too harsh, but certainly a left-wing analysis. Uh, One of the things Moorcock does is he points out certain features of Lord of the Rings where you know, the orcs all talk in the vernacular, uh, the elves. Any, anyone who's a good guy, with the exception of Sam Gamgee, uh, has a nice, uh, you know, received pronunciation accent. Uh, and anyone who's a villain tends to have a kind of, you know, regional cockney type of accent. There's things like men from the East, fear of revolution, uh, the status quo. You know, the elves have got sort of power Uh, And want to keep it, and all the orcs want is what the elves have got. What's so bad about that? Uh, Industrialisation, fear of that kind of thing. You know, the kind of rural idyll that the elves and the hobbits live in, and the kind of grimy industrial sort of industrial world of the orcs that's coming to take over. And and Moorcock kind of makes the case that Tolkien, sort of establishment figure, bit posh, Oxbridge. Essentially, Lord of the Rings is a fear of revolution. It's a fear of the working classes. It's a fear of that kind of thing. Now, you know, that kind of struck a chord with us. Um, whether you agree with that or not it, it debatable. It yeah. is debatable. It's a controversial view. Yeah. But I think the other thing that Wizardry and Wild Romance did, and this is really the more significant thing for, for me and you, I think, and for some of our friends, it was a bit, it was sort of saying it's all right to not like Tolkien that much. Because yeah. secretly, I don't. Yeah. I find him a bit boring. Don't, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not questioning his literary abilities. And those those films they made were fantastically exciting. But uh, we always had a problem that we would read lots of fantasy fiction. And we liked Moorcock and we liked Fritz Lieber and we liked Robert E. Howard and we liked people like that. But I always struggled with Tolkien. I always found it a bit dull. I mean, when Sam and Frodo get onto those Misty Marshes, is it? Yeah. yeah. Or whatever. Oh, my God. God, it's boring. It is. I've said it now. It's yeah, out there. Said, it's no, boring. No. I found it boring. And I think in Wild Romance was quite a liberating read because it really... They, putting aside the kind of left-wing Marxist analysis, even if you agree or not agree, they don't agree with that, it, it, it set up the idea, do you know what? It's actually all right to not like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You can be a fantasy fan. You can like fantasy writing. You can like all sorts of different things. You can like role-playing and all that. You don't have to like Tolkien, particularly. Yeah but I don't I find him a bit dull
0: yeah I mean I think uh, I'm, I'm pleased you chose because this is a very uh, very important book in my uh formative period yeah, yeah, of, me too, yeah. because I think it's um I mean reading it again right, I've been reading it again uh, recently it's not as angry as I remember it hmm um, it's more of a patchwork quilt of quotes um, of stuff out there that example is an example yeah. of the stuff that he thinks yeah. fantasy should be. Yeah. And I think it's not so much a I, I, I think it's not so much a Marxist analysis in that he's trying to say that somehow fantasy and speculative fiction should respond to the world mm. and, uh, around them. Yeah. What it shouldn't be doing is serving up uh, platitudes and yes. yeah. um you know you know, heaven forbid nostalgia, I mean people who peddle nostalgia they're should, the worst kind of people they're the worst kind of they're the
1: worst kind of people we would never be we would never like to think of ourselves as doing that no
0: so he he's coming from um, his anarchist view um that he formed in the sixties of being in this era when the old order the establishment was trying to hold on to colonial power that was yeah. slowly disintegrating and seeing the the rise of um, uh, seeing, seeing the rise of the proletariat uh, uh, wanting more and having aspiration and uh, what he's saying is like you know it's like harking back to yeah you know, to, to what, what they wanted before but as you say more, more importantly doing it in a really boring way yeah. so what he he presents is a lot of uh, authors who have written speculative fiction that engages with what's happening in the world and presents it in a really challenging and interesting way. And thanks to this, I discovered uh, invicornium which is yeah. John Harrison's yeah, yeah. collection brilliant brilliant uh, novels. Um, also, uh, uh, Mithego Wood. Do you remember, yeah, I remember, I remember, I remember that. Yeah. All, all yeah. All stock. Really, really good uh, novels that kind of challenging and Offer a different perspective. I yeah, yeah.
1: I think you're right, and that's the key to it. Like you say, whether whether you agree or not with his analysis of Lord of the Rings, um, that that's can be put aside. But it does it does put you in push you in the direction of saying there's all the stuff out there, and you don't necessarily have to like this. You don't have to put this on a pedestal because there is that sense with Tolkien, there's a sense with Lord of the Rings right. that it's there on a pedestal, and you know to be revered and to be at the centre of all fantasy fiction and all fantasy kind of comes away, comes off that, yeah. shoots off that, and well, see, it's obviously an influential book, and I suppose you have to ask the question: without Lord of the Rings, what would have happened to fantasy writing? Would it have gone in the direction it did? I mean, there, there is that, yeah. but it, it's not the be all and end all, you know. Yeah. We we were both, I think, in our early teenage years, slightly embarrassed and ashamed. It was like a dark secret, wasn't it? The, yeah. The, I don't. I don't think even we discussed it between us. I think no. even. With each other, we kept it a bit of a secret until until we we're a bit older. And then I think I can't remember, but it might have been. I have a memory of it being in Games Workshop actually. Yeah. And I think we were looking at Middle Earth role playing or something. I think one of us maybe one of us com- confessed to the other and said, "You know, I'm not really, I don't really like talking Yeah. I <laughs> think one of them you know, was like, "Oh, neither do I." Actually, he's quite boring, isn't he? You know, I really struggled to finish Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> and I
0: mean, it was like, oh thank god. Anybody who was in difficulty with it, I always say. Yeah. Two words: Tom Bombadil. Tom, Tom bon- Bomb.
1: Tom Bombadil. Dreadful, dreadful man.
0: Yeah. Never um, met him,
1: but I, I believe he's dreadful.
0: I just, uh, I one thing to say, I think that, um, Moorcock doesn't necessarily follow this pattern though, because you got to say that his fantasy fiction is, he, he, he doesn't really, he, he, he has the kind of banality, of just like inverting things. Yes,
1: yeah, so yeah. of course
0: he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's what I find interesting is that it's the other authors that he recommends, that, mm, yeah. and you know, like yeah. Peake and the other people who have influenced him. Yeah. Um, if you want to have a better understanding of Moorcock's fiction, I do recommend uh, Colin Greenland's uh, book, Death is No Obstacle, yeah. uh, which was brought out in 92, uh, I think. And Colin Greenland has an Imagine link, because he was the book reviewer for Imagine. That's a bit of a callback to the earlier bit. Um, And what's interesting from a game point of view here as well, he actually gives his formula for how he made those novels back in the day, so when he was writing them. And he took the view that he takes 60,000 words, Mm. divide them into four sections, and then 15,000, you divide them into six chapters, and then every chapter needs an incident or action that moves the narrative forward so that every four pages, mm. something jaw-dropping is happening. Yeah. Now, to me, that is a good model for Are you uh, rumbling. Are you listening, Tolkien? Yeah.
1: Every four pages, something happened. Not every 4,000 pages. <laughs> <laughs> people have switched off now, haven't they? They don't yeah. like Tolkien. Yeah. Never listen to these people again. Yeah. Heretics.
0: <laughs> well, let's move away from uh, Tolkien onto uh, safer ground. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> music, because yes. people, people are not
1: tribal about music. Really. People are not tribal, and there are no controversial views in music at all. No. Correct.
0: So, what I brought here is my vinyl copy of Hawkwind, The Chronicle of the Black Sword, which is from 1985, and it is the interpretation of Moorcock's work, and Moorcock provided uh, lyrics for one of the songs on there. Sleep of a Thousand Tears. And he had a long association with uh, Hawkwind, uh, touring with them occasionally. And if you look on YouTube, you can actually see him uh, reciting poetry alongside the Dead God's Homecoming. I have it on good authority that Hawkwind toured with this as well, uh, with a great show with dancers and mm. uh, things like things like that. Um, and they were supported by Dumpy's Rusty Knots, Really? Dump his rusty nuts, which I always think sounds like an ADD spell. You know, like... Uh, <laughs> Some kind of curse. Yeah, well, yeah. like Tensor's Floating Disc, yeah. dump his rusty nuts. Well,
1: it'd be like a curse, though, wouldn't it? You cast it on someone, they've got rusty nuts.
0: Now, I, get, I gave you this to listen to uh, the other day. Mm. Is this the first time you listened to it?
1: I think I may have listened to it a long time ago. It's a long time since I've listened to it. So it was all kind of came back. Some bit, little bits of it came back, but a lot of it felt quite fresh. Yeah, and what did you think? I enjoyed it, actually. I, I enjoyed it a lot. A, a few weeks ago, I was forced to watch. I say forced. I just couldn't bother getting out of the armchair. I was forced to watch the Brits. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, uh, what's happened to music? Why is, why is there no Hawkwind winning yeah. a Brit? No equivalent of Hawkwind winning a Brit. It was all boring boy bands, girl bands, and some woman in frock. Yeah. Warbling, talking about how miserable she was and her latest relationship broken up. Why is there no one singing about a needle gun, or yeah. Elric the Enchanter, yeah. or the Sea Gods of Pantang? Why is why is no one singing about that? <laughs> What's gone wrong? So, so what you're saying is Adele is like Tom Bombadil in what the rock. I want, and what and I'm something. saying it is Adele, if you're listening, I want you to. I mean, the, the Black Sword Storming has been more cocked, been done. What she needs to record is, you know, I don't know, a musical version of Moon, or Corum maybe. Yeah, yeah. You know, or even Jerry Cornelius. Vidal's next album is a musical adaptation of the Jerry Cornelius stories. I'd, I'd buy that. I'd buy that, and I'd say your Brit Award is deserved.
0: The um, the sound of this is, I mean, you can get it on Spotify um, and listen to mm. it. Um, the sound of this is very much of that um, mid eighties New prog, uh, yeah. electronica. Yeah. Uh, and we used to listen to that stuff alongside playing RPG. We did, didn't we? we did, and so, it's a good, it's a good soundtrack to an RPG
1: session, isn't it? And I, I, I do think there's a, there's a whole podcast to be done on music that, that people listen to when they're playing role playing games. In fact, that's the thing for Twitter. We've had, I think, we've had four games, yeah. four books. What about four pieces of music, four RPG pieces of music there yeah. on Twitter? Get onto that one,
0: and we we could create a Spotify
2: playlist. Yeah, I'll do yeah, that yeah. in the uh, we would, show. Notes. We would
1: often do that. There were always always albums. I mean, what what were they? Robin of Sherwood. The Robin of Sherwood theme tune. Yeah, the, not theme tune, but the, the soundtrack was one that we always played. Yeah, you know, and you always wanted certain tracks to coincide with the
0: action. Yeah, and they never did. And Mike Oldfield's uh, Incantation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that was another one. Yeah, that was yeah. It. But Heartwind, uh, I think this uh, album used to belong to Eddie, and I think I swapped it for something ridiculous. But I saved it from going over the uh, wall, I think, because Eddie got rid of all his stuff. But it's a really good album, and uh, Moorcock um, was a wannabe rock star. He was, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what have you got up next?
1: Well, the next thing, and I think this will work really well on a... Non-visual medium such as podcast is the posters by Rodney Matthews, the uh, Elric brilliant. posters um, of which there are many. Um, Rodney Matthews not not sounds like a footballer, maybe a footballer, but he's not a footballer in the same way that Michael Morcott's not a Great Crosser. <laughs> Rodney Matthews he's not a footballer, um, and he uh, he's, he's, he's posters and pictures of Elric. Um, I think have a, I think it's fair to say have a kind of degree of fame, don't they? I mean, they are kind of quite. Um, they're, they're quite distinctive, aren't yeah. they? I mean, the, he has this style where they look almost insect-like, don't they? There's a kind of insect-like quality to yeah. the people. They look kind of, you know, in, in that way. And it, it's a kind of odd. It's an odd style because the risk is sounding too pretentious. Um, they have that kind of insect-like thing, and it's almost like you're looking in a little world of fantasy where these kind of little strange little people are knocking around with swords. You know, that's that's yeah. the feeling that you get. And Rodney Matthews posters, and I—I I mean, I used to have several on my wall um, as a teenager. I think I was one of Elric and Moonglum fighting the dragon, which I think was on the front cover. And imagine that was, yes, wasn't yes. it? Yeah. Um, and there's several others, and they're fighting some kind of beetle people, that kind of thing—beetle monsters. Um, so yeah, I used to really like Rodney Matthews.
0: Um, well, I think uh, Elric has always been a visual muse, hasn't he? For mm. Uh, graphic artists and yeah. there's a number of uh, graphic novels and uh, and I do believe that when um, uh, Moorcock was originally conceiving Outrik, he worked alongside Jim Carthorn, who um, helped to visualise what what he might look like. And it wasn't till much later that Jim Carphone's, um material was published, you know, graphic novel form, but. It, there are a number of I brought some graphic novels here to uh, show you. This is this is the uh, again. This is good for this, video, this
1: works well on yeah, radio. It, it? Really well. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's
0: a fantastic.
1: That's the most amazing thing I've
0: ever seen, Dirk. <laughs> it's a pity people I can't share, see I share, isn't I, it. I'll share these. But uh, P. Craig Russell uh, did a comic strip um, artist from a comic strip, and his version of Elric is a lot like August Beardsley's. um Art Nouveau kind of swirls mm. and uh, really made it an exotic figure. But um, they're they they a good collection. But a number of people have contacted me to say I've never read Elric. I've never um, I've never experienced uh, moorcock 's books. Was a good um, starting point, and I've pointed them towards mm. this that came out a couple of years ago. It's the uh, Ruby Throne. Um, by Blondell, Pauli, uh, Rec, and Bastide, and it is a brilliant uh, graphic. And all good. Not only because of the visual imagery is very striking, um, but because the writing is very good, they've actually changed the story in places um, to make it more narratively co- coherent for a visual medium. Um, but it, they, I mean, you just have to look at the pictures of Doctor Jess, the torturer. And um, he kind of picks the cruelty, the casual cruelty of uh, Malnabornian and the darkness. And, and Ariok is very, very um, disturbing. It's that
1: thing with Moorcock, isn't it? There's a multimedia dimension to it, isn't there? There's the yeah. music, there's the graphic stuff, you know, more so than a lot of other fantasy yeah. authors, really.
0: There's one, uh, there's one absence in Moorcock and Elric. Which we'll probably come on to when I show my final thing. Aha, <laughs> aha. You're the final thing. Is The final thing is The Final Programme, mm. which is a film um, that was uh, directed and written by Robert Foost, who's famous for uh, doing the Dr. Fibes uh, film. And this is a, an adaptation of Moorcock's Jerry Cornelius uh, novel of the same name. Probably his most accessible novel. He wrote four, and there's lots of um, short stories. I'm always... You liked Hall Moon. Mm. I was always a big Jerry Cornelius fan. Jerry Cornelius is a spy, bon vivant, rock star, um, libidinous, bisexual, polymorphic, perverse uh, character from the 60s, early 70s. And this film kind of tries to capture... Some of that um, experience it's a, bit, it's a bonkers film. Um, <laughs> but what's interesting about it is I, I could never get hold of it. I knew, uh, I read um, Jerry Cornelius in the 80s. I used to score score the um, uh, TV listings every every week on the hunt for it, appearing late on Channel 4. It never never appeared. And it finally came on DVD in 2013 and I was able to get it. So what what's interesting is that there's never been an Elric film. No, there hasn't no. And you would think, of all of Morcot's creation, mm. Elric would have been a great. It,
1: it would. It's a strange thing though, isn't it? It's like I always say with movies, it's that odd thing where you know, can a movie, the movie being a terrible, terrible thing, um, you know how it affects things. I mean, the Lord of the Rings films were fantastic. I mean you know, as we've yeah. just discussed better than the books, in my humble opinion. And um, but I suppose you always worry, don't you, that when somebody makes a movie of something like Elric, would it would it destroy some of the mystique? Would it I don't know. I yeah. can imagine I, I suppose what I'm saying is I can imagine a movie being brilliant, but I can also imagine it being rubbish yeah. and being disappointing. It's almost like it's it's a maybe it's a good thing that it's never been made. It's yeah. it's never been made, it's never been ruined. And there's an element of that, you know.
0: But you'd think, because of its episodic nature and the fact that it has inspired such great graphic novels... Yeah, you novels would think so, yeah.
1: You'd think they'd be queuing up to yeah, make a
0: film. But or TV series, you know, and the game, yeah, age of yeah. uh, Game of Thrones. I mean, they've just, yeah, just started yeah. doing the Shannara yeah. series. That's dreadful. But <laughs> it, you would think that Elric, for an adult uh, yeah, fantasy yeah, yeah, series, he would, would make yeah. it great. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and it's like all the Marvel stuff, isn't it? I mean, they're making a Marvel... Uh, superhero film about anything and everything these days, aren't they? You know, you've yeah. got the Deadpool ones and you've got, is it Doctor Strange? Don't, don't yeah, Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch, is Doctor Strange. You start thinking, I mean, nothing wrong with that, but he, he's kind of making a movie out of every yeah. superhero that ever graced the pages of a
0: comic. I mean, yeah. why, why not Elric? Elric's yeah. oh, time will come. And I think that uh, Moorcock has made a lot of money mm. through options yeah. of uh, Elric films that never never emerged.
1: Well, I think, is was it Stephen King that said the best thing that can ever happen to you as a novelist is that they buy the rights to one of your books and yeah. never make the film? Never make it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> get the money but they don't get the chance to ruin it.
0: If you're interested in the final programme, I do urge you to listen to Mr Jim Moon's Hypnogoria. He talks in some depth about the film. Um, it, it is utterly balmy, actually. Um, but... It's, you'll you'll have to watch it and enjoy it so I think that's a a, one thing before we go for Jerry Cornelius we Mm -hmm. should say do you know how Jerry Cornelius got his name?
1: I have a feeling you're going to tell me it was actually the name of a (laughs) greengrocer
0: that's real that's That's not true it is true that's
1: not true you're making a a fool of me in a podcast now aren't you?
0: (laughs) that is is a more cocky in fact
1: It is a greengrocer, really? A proper greengrocer? Yeah. He's just on a corner shop.
0: Are you bending the truth? It's just one of those great bits of synchronicity. (laughs) Um, Anyway, we're going to uh, get through that hatch. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, take with you the Ruby Throne and uh, the final programme and enjoy that.
1: He's done very well for himself, Malcolm Walker, hasn't he? Yeah. For a (laughs) greengrocer.
2: See you later, by See you, Dirk. Post
0: bike. My social media channel of choice is Twitter. I'm on at the Grognard file, where there's a community of gamers, old gamers, exchanging stories and images from playing back in the day. Here is a Stormbringer anecdote from Ian Griffiths. I don't really remember much about our Stormbringer campaign, except it was hijacked by a local nutter. A friend of a friend of a friend heard we were playing and had read a bit of Elric. As far as I know, he'd never gamed before. We were playing at my mate's mum's house and she let him in. Fifteen minutes later, he'd taken over games mastering the game, hitcher style. It was a weird mix of Psychodrama, psychedelia with just a hint of young kingdoms. He also kept plainly stating that if we died in the game, he was going to kill us in real life. We were lucky he didn't understand Stormbringer at all, or else we'd have been in trouble. I remember we spent a few hours, real time, walking through a chaos marsh that was peppered with stepping stones made of fossilised dinosaur foetuses. We had 1% chance of dying each step and he literally made us do it 100 times each with the understanding that he would kill us for real if we failed. It was the most terrifying night of our lives. At some point he went out to the shop and we were so terrified that we pretended to be out. Lights off, music off, lying on the floor. After a few minutes... The doorbell stopped buzzing and I was so desperate for the loo I crawled on my hands and my knees to the upstairs toilet only to see him wheedling his way in through the bathroom window. He then marched me downstairs and we did another two hours rolling individual steps through the marsh. This time I think he dropped some LSD so if anything it was weirder and more terrifying. And that's the only thing I really remember about gaming Stormbringer, which is slightly sad, as we had scores of really great nights playing it. Blimey, Charlie. Thanks for that, Ian. Sheesh. Meanwhile, over at the blog, com, comes this less terrifying encounter from Frank. I believe it was in 1998 that I attended my first ever fantasy convention in the USA, Leprechaun or Coppercon in Phoenix, Arizona. I'd been to conventions, more like meetups, in Germany before, but this was the real deal, and I tried to get as many new experiences in as possible, determined to try an RPG that I hadn't played before. I signed up for a game of Tunnels and Trolls. The gamesmaster was a nice man in his mid-forties, I guessed, wearing a fedora hat. After a short rules explanation of about ten minutes, our party, one member of which was a young girl of about eighteen, the daughter of the gamesmaster, as it turned out, was off to its adventure. And it was awesome. We had about a three-hour romp through a dungeon with much hilarity in action. To this day, I fondly remember that fun adventure and the RPG of Tunnels and Trolls. You will have guessed by now that the gamesmaster Master was none other than Ken Santandra. Thanks for that, Frank. There's a Tunnels and Trolls Grognard file coming soon. When it comes to building fun into RPGs, Ken Santandra is the master. Since the last podcast, we've reached our first Patreon goal of producing a PDF magazine or fanzine later in the year. If you want to support the podcast and become an honorary member of the Armchair Adventurers Club, then please head over to patreon.com slash Files, where you can see a short film that I'm very proud of that explains everything. So thank you to Joe Glavin and Callum from coming on board. Callum is the host of released podcast i'll put a link on the show notes he's a it's a lively rpg program in a magazine format and he went to dragon meat as well and he made some great content there so if you want to compare our experiences then please give it a listen joining the armchair adventurers at three and a half dollar level is andrew cousins and fred kish which means they'll get a hard copy of the fanzine if we reach that goal Rick Knott has also boosted himself to this level. Thanks, guys. As a special thanks to those who have pledged $5, I'm going to award them something special from a table. Uh, This time, they're going to get a mutation from the Animal Mutations table that appears in the Hawkmoon game. Okay, so first up is Andrew Jones who I still owe a, owe a pint for recognising me, dragging me. I've not forgotten. And there's certain licensing issues to overcome yadda yadda yadda. I, I need to thank you too for pointing me towards the Cerebus the Ardvark comic strip, which featured Elrod the Albino. Thanks for your support. And I'm going to give you... Uh, you've got Luminescence. So uh, enjoy glowing in the dark, Andrew. Thank you. Matthew Broom has pledged $5 a month, and as a result, he now has a strong pheromone. He is indeed a strange attractor. Chris Sharp has joined at $5 and he has natural camouflage. So, uh, if anyone finds him, uh, pass on my thanks. So, that's the end of the Stormbringer episode. Again, I'd like to come back to it once I've had a chance to play some of the later editions and to talk about Chaosium's Magic World. But the next episode is about a game. You may have heard of it. It's called Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. It's going to be a big topic at Daily Dwarf, is burning the midnight oil, trying to find the best from White Dwarf. And the Armchair Adventurers have had a long and complicated relationship with AD&D, which we'll explain. And we're trying to work out uh, how to tackle this huge subject in an interesting and meaningful way. And so as a result, the next one might be a bit later than the four-week cycle that we've been aiming for so far but we will have it out at the end of, before the end of next month in the meantime i'm going to put on my fedora my fur coat and paint my nails black pack my needle gun and fire up the phantom until next time adios amigos